So this week on the Interplanetary Podcast, we'll be talking about the British Interplanetary Society. And Matt, we've got an interview with the great David Iron. Yep, about Lunar Mission One. Let's go. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Matt, it's only episode 14. You know what that means? It's the Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. So, Jamie. Hi, Matt. Welcome to the 14th podcast. This is really special. Do you yeah. want to tell people what room we're in? We're in the British Interplanetary Society's library. Now, how ace is it? There are one or two books. books about space. Let's delve into what the British Interplanetary Society is, Jamie. Let's get some stats up. Let's some stats. So... The British Interplanetary Society is the oldest continually running space advocacy society in the world. In the world? In the world. Okay, okay. Nice yeah. start. So uh, it's pretty important that front. It uh, was... Uh, do you know when it was founded? I'm going to shoot with 1933. Exactly right. In Liverpool? In Liverpool. Exactly. <laughs> it's almost like I've done my research. <laughs> it is. By a bloke called Philip E. Cleeter. Mm-hmm. Uh, who basically had watched a film and thought, God, that's really exciting when he saw some nu- nuclear propulsion ship. Right. And he thought, oh, I've, got to, I've got to do something like this. So he set up the British Interplanetary Society right. after hearing about the American version of it. Oh, so it was almost a... Was it a one-upmanship thing? Mm, no, I just think he thought that he, he thought it was a good idea. Good idea, and he, and he went over and uh, chatted with the German version of it as well. Uh, but those two basically ended... Hmm. They were going to start building some rockets, but uh, they realised that in 1875, the Explosives Act uh, prevented private testing of liquid-fuelled rockets. That'll do it. So that was kind of the kibosh on any kind of British attempts at um, building your own rockets. Hmm. Uh, and although the BIS includes the word British in its name, a bit like the Interplanetary Podcast, it's, it's, it, most of our listeners are international, and most of the BIS members are international too. So oh, glad almost half are American. So in the years before World War II, a technical corps of BIS members made the first plans for a rocket capable of landing three men on the moon and returning them to Earth. No small feat. It is no small feat. And uh, funnily enough, Stephen Baxter and Simon Bradshaw wrote a story called First the Moon, which picks up on an alternative history of mankind where the BIS moonship actually gets built. Nice. Yeah. So Stephen Baxter, a very well-known science fiction writer. Um, in fact, I wrote, read his book Proxima after the Proxima discovery. And just really? Had, yeah, yeah. So his What's it like? It's really good. It's a really good book, and it's. But what's amazing is how many aspects of the Proxima planet he gets right. Yeah. How near it is to the star, the fact that it's tidally locked, the fact you know. It's almost like there's aliens involved, Matt. Yeah, it's almost like he knew too much. That's the theme tune. Illuminati confirmed. <laughs> So, so uh, in the 1940s, a group had planned for a suborbital spaceflight from a converted V2 rocket known as the Mega Rock. Oh, that's a good name. And I, I, this is a decade earlier than the Mercury Redstone uh, flights of 1961. So, uh, you know, if we'd only have gone with that, instead of John Glenn, it could have been I know Arthur Smith yeah, or something. Yeah, exactly. 
So or Jamie Franklin or Jamie Franklin yeah, or Jamie that. Franklin's granddad. Yeah, that's true. That's could have true. been yeah, could have been the yeah. first first man in you know first orbital flight. Although actually, Mega Rock was never going to be an orbital vehicle. It wasn't quite as complicated as Mercury Redstone. Right, but it was you know uh, we were making serious attempts at, at doing that, and and the purpose of it was to go up and do some scientific measurements. Nice. Uh, and see if you could actually radio through the ionosphere and stuff like that. Okay. So Arthur C. Clarke, very famous member, and this is, and this building is named after Arthur C. Clarke, uh, first suggested the concept of communication satellites in a private memorandum to fellows of the society prior to his first publication in 1945. Nice. It's not a bad legacy, yeah, is it? No. So so far we've learned that uh, the British Interplanetary Society, in some sense, were the first society ever. Uh, to put together to design a spaceship essentially mm. so that's pretty that's pretty amazing 1951 the BIS organised the world's first international congress or the IAF mm-hmm. not to be confused with last week's podcast the FAI the Fédération Aeronautique Internationale absolutely so we're joined uh, by David Iron of the Lunar Mission 1 project Hello. what is what is the mission itself what's the um, the main purpose of Lunar Mission 1. Um, the, the mission itself, you can put it into two categories. One is uh, science, um, and with that, um, we're looking to drill deep, um, deeper than anybody else before. It's it's uh, used a new technology called wireline drilling, um, which has challenges which we're looking to, to overcome, where we can drill uh, tens of metres as opposed to a few metres. That's what's been achieved before. Uh, before, but with this wireline drill, we we have opened up the potential to go principally to well, in principle, to any kind of depth, and we want to try it um, on the moon first under robotic control from the Earth. And that'll be a huge step towards making it work under fully autonomous conditions when you go to Mars and 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 beyond. So that's the the the, the main scientific benefit by going below you can get to the rock that's laid unchanged for you know billions of years and we can also do science off the surface of the moon that's the bit where we look at what kind of the environment is uh, the lunar south pole which is where i should mention where we're like where we're almost certainly going to go that's that's where we try to characterize its potential for a permanent base Look at the both the opportunities for reusing uh, lunar material um, and the threats that the um, astronauts would uh, face there, um, and we can also do a bit of science from the moon by uh, doing a, a check on the prospects for low-frequency radio astronomy. So there'll be uh, science of the moon, science on the moon, and science yeah. from the moon. That's that's the um, the scientific bit. That's the bit that. Um, space agencies would uh, recognise as, as, as good in its own right. Um, but we also add uh, this popular public engagement bit by saying, well, let's use the borehole for uh, depositing a very long-term time capsule. The environment down the borehole is second to none for preservation, we think, anywhere in the solar system. Certainly, it's relatively easy to get to. Um, it's very cold. We're looking at minus 150 Celsius, that kind of thing. Perfect vacuum. Um, don't even have the lunar uh, a tenuous atmosphere on the, which you get on the surface. Below the surface there isn't anything. Um, tiny amount of black ground radiation which we need to uh, make a better assessment of. Um, uh, but essentially it's stable, it's protected by tens of metres of rock. Um, the, the moon has very uh, low level of uh, magnetic um, field. It's, it's less than 1% of the Earth. It has got um, moonquakes but they're small compared to the Earth. Um, 
and the tectonic plate movements and that kind of stuff. So um, our predictions are that what goes down the hole will stay there, provided it's more than a few metres, will uh, have the potential to stay there undisturbed uh, for something of the order of a billion years, you know, give or take. There's a prospect of a destructing asteroid if it's big enough, fast enough and close enough. Yeah. But you can do your calculations for that and our back of the envelope calculations suggest that there's a 50-50 chance we could survive you know, for billions of years and that takes us beyond uh, what is the true limiting factor which is the expansion of the sun mm. and the heating up of of the Earth and its moon um, in the sort of one to two, three billion year time frame. So that is the ultimate yeah. Um, uh, failure point, um, but it means that um, provided it's not discovered or in, um, um, somehow um, uh, disturbed, it means that it would survive um, a time scale which is equivalent to the time scale of life on Earth itself. Yeah. Whatever happens to us and so on, we can ex- reasonably expect life to continue um, until this. Uh, heat event um, and whatever happens to individuals and species and so on there'll be this thing just waiting quietly there for discovery at some point in the future who knows what's going to happen is it going to be another form of you know yeah. more developed form of us or are the insects going to take over the world in 65 million years yeah, time yeah. or is it going to be extraterrestrial intelligence or green men no idea so the so the archive itself <coughs> is, is is kind of like the in terms of public engagement is the really exciting part of the project yes some some, some, some people like the idea of, of of the science some people like the idea of exploration and so on but these are relatively small small portions of, of people yeah um one of the uh, criticisms I had when we uh, first kickstarted, we raised a million dollars a couple of years ago at the Royal, um, from the Royal Society announcement, uh, many from the states, is that you can't kickstart a project of this size, and that's true. You, you can kickstart, um, okay, kickstart crowdfund, um, uh, a, a, a one million dollar uh, CubeSat. Yeah, that's fine, <coughs> um, uh, but you can't crowdfund something of this scale you know, right. in the order of a billion dollars or so um, and the reason is that there aren't enough people who are excited by mm. space they, they, they may disagree or may be shock horror mm. what you mean there aren't lots of us well there are but it's still a small portion of mm. the population there are far more people who are interested in cars in music in sport even dancing and cookery yeah. gets a, a bigger fan base than space and even science in general. So uh, what we've got to do is to tweak the interest and the desire and so on and, and the ability to, you know, the, 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 the will to part with money for something that gets us uh, well beyond the conventional space science community. So if someone wants to send up a lock of hair or a digital photo, how can they do that? Well, <clears throat> they just hand it in. Right. Um, we um, what we're doing is making this relevant to everybody. And what is it that interests most people more than anything else? Um, it's themselves. So this is a very personal thing. It's also very social. Um, that the youngsters in their twenties like to do things because it's it's fun. But as you get older, it's more to do with you know who you are and you know you want to lay, lay down a record for your offspring and their children's children and all that kind of stuff. Um, and they can write what they like. That's the beauty. You know, it's it's very much up to them. We're not quite sure what the killer app is in terms of the content. Um, but it doesn't really matter, provided that there are enough people who want to write something about themselves. Um, and we leave, uh, we, we have two types of um, uh, record. One's a public record, not owned by anybody in particular, it's owned by the public. Um, and that's a, a life of, you know, a, a record of life on Earth. 
history, civilization, uh, the biosphere, geography, species, wildlife, and so on. Um, and uh, we treat that as an educational project. Um, and the model we've got from that is the BBC Doomsday Project for Schools in 1985. We were essentially copying that and extending it um, internationally and online. Um, uh, but for the private bit, this is the bit that raises the money, um, it, um, uh, it consists of people, as you say, um, handing over a, a strand of hair to collect mm -hmm. their DNA. We don't process it, we just store it as DNA. It's, it's difficult to process anyway, but we assume if somebody finds it, they'll, have, they'll be so interested in it. Of course. You know, they'll... they'll, 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 they'll do a lot to, to try and mm. you know uncover it. Um, plus, of course, digital material itself, which is simply uploaded. So the, um, the, the 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 effort you need to um, uh, store your material, and this is actually very simple. You've got to do is you know make up something or take something you've already made and upload it. If it's digital, photographs, videos. Um, the bigger the capacity, the bigger the file size, if you like, the more it's going to cost. But of course, there'll be economies of scale. Um, so you might start off with a dollar. Hi, I'm Joe from Wisconsin. A dollar. Uh, sure. you know, um, a family history, $50. Um, and the, But if you want your DNA as hair, then we're looking at um, uh, up to about $100 starting point, something like that. But most people from the market research we've done, or at least the, 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 the numbers who provide the backbone of the economic case are those who provide both uh, their DNA and uh, information um, and we're looking um, at pricing that um, according again from the market research who've confirmed this that it's likely most people um, w would would spend in the order of a few hundred dollars sure okay not high hundreds not tens 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 of dollars maybe for uh, the digital stuff or hi I'm Joe um, that's very cheap but the, uh, we think that most of those who can afford it would, will, will do the, the DNA and the, um, and the information. Um, and that up to, you know, it's then up to them, do they want to put together family groups, social groups, clubs, classes. Um, it, it doesn't really matter to us, provided we uh, market it to get the maximum amount of money. And we have to be very mercenary about this. This is not do good. This is... This is earning money we, we yeah. will price it to get the maximum amount of money the do good bit the social bit is the public archive yeah. so the public archive is inclusive don't need to pay it's not about yourself um, as yeah. such unless we choose to do it for particular reasons but generally speaking it's about society and the world we live in so that could be considered a kind of mankind and earth backup disc that goes in the hole if people want to look at it like that yes yeah yes Yes, and we'll probably, uh, we'll almost certainly be basing it on Wikipedia. Yeah. Um, and there's some work going on in the background that will help us for that. Um, how we work with it, with the schools programme, we don't know. So we've got a pilot programme that's now started, and that will run for about three years or so. It'll take about three years to set the main project up, to get the main contracts together before mm. we know who's going to do it, who's, who the... You need to state at least one space agency to back it in some way. Um, there'll probably be governments involved with the educational side. Um, uh, we need to get some proving early revenues. Um, in a sense, the Kickstarter backing was a, a, a test of early revenues, but we need to develop that to make it more relevant. And um, we need to uh, de-risk um, the critical drilling technology. And all that will take about three years for yeah. really to get to 
uh, substantial contracts and at that point we'll know who's going to do it, how much it's going to cost, the timescales and all the kind of things that you need uh, to tie down which we can only postulate at the moment. Yeah, is, is the is the craft itself that goes to the, the Lunar South Pole, uh, presumably that, that gets launched on a conventional space launch system. What sort of space launch system is it? What sort of estimated weight of craft is it going to be? Is it going to be something that needs to go up on one of the heavy launches? Yeah, there have been three um, feasibility studies so far. One by Ralph Space and two by uh, two universities. Um, And we're looking at a a dry mass on the moon of just under a tonne, a a metric tonne, with about 150 kilograms of payload and um, 60 kilograms of, 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 of science. The archive itself is quite, is quite small, we're looking at about 10 kilograms, including mm. the canisters. Um, indeed, 10 million strands of hair, which is what we're expecting, is about the size and weight of a bag of flour. And that will fly with the, with the machine that does the digging as well? Indeed. Yeah. Um, the, the, uh, to get it there, to land just under a kiloton, you need a, a medium lift top end of a medium lift launch so we're looking at a Falcon 9 that kind of thing the decision about which uh, launch vehicle to use doesn't have to be taken for another six years or so yeah. um, and it won't be our decision anyway it'll be up to industry whoever wins the, the, the whether we contract with yeah. to do the mission um, uh, but you can imagine it's that kind of scale launching 10 to 12 um, uh, kilotons into low earth orbit equivalent Probably um, uh, launching it into lunar, well, towards the moon, what's called TLI, translunar injection, and then the spacecraft will handle the rest. It'll have its own fuel yeah. to deorbit, or at least, you know, to, yeah. to, to, to secure lunar orbit, and then to uh, descend and land on, on the lunar surface with a with a tiny amount of residual fuel left. Yeah. Sure. And those are the kind of things. Now, whether they go direct the moon or whether they use one of these increasingly large elliptical orbits um, you know for fuel efficiency as opposed to time we're not actually too fast yeah. it's very much up to them it's what sure. they think is, is best value for money yeah um, well, we, we could go on to the fourth sign and how this thing gets, <laughs> <laughs> gets signposted <laughs> that will probably but, but, we, we, I suspect we need that will be a subject of a yeah I might need a longer one yeah for sure so in short really it's a, it's a mission to go to the moon Drill a hole for science, uh, but the benefit of drilling this hole for science it leaves you with a a place to put an archive of the world and an archive of individuals, and uh, it's the archive of individuals that essentially is the thing that pays for the for the mission itself. That, that's correct. The private archive um, uh, funds it, and our market research suggests it will you know overfund it. We'll get an excess, which then goes to public good because the whole thing is a non-profit. Yeah. Um, so we'll have you know with with luck in excess of a billion, two billion dollars um, to spend on other space science and exploration. Mm. That's what the Lunar Missions Trust is set up for. Um, whereas the public archive is an educational uh, asset. You know, just putting this together carries enormous educational value yeah. in its own right. Yeah, I mean the educational thing is definitely something that people should look into. Where where would people find all the information for Lunar Mission 1? Where's the best place to go? Um, at the moment it's, it's on the website, um, although the we, website needs updating to give it the, the latest uh, view of what's going on, which I hope to do in the new year. Um, but those who um, get involved as pilot schools um, will talk to us direct. Um, we, we will give them examples of what they can do to get going. Um, we've already tested it with you know uh, a, a few dozen 
mm -hmm. uh, sixth formers and, and, and younger and older. Mainly we've aimed mainly at sixth formers, but we've got quite a lot. Um, actually, we've, we've had several dozen involved so far. We've had over 100 people, including primary school, involved in various painting and poetry competitions yeah. and so on. Um, uh, but for them, they need to be uh, aware of the project uh, direct. So yeah. at this stage, we're not trying to go big to everybody. It's too. It's simply too early. It'll be yeah. another six or seven years before the main program starts. Yeah. Um, and we need to know that the project is going to happen. And the, yeah. At the moment, it's that we're at risk. Mm. Only when we get to the main contracts with a setup that we know the project is going to happen. Yeah. Sure. Up until then, it's a question of de-risking the technology, the revenues, the science, sure. the education, and so on. Yeah. So everyone needs to be aware that there are risks. But we're getting people who are enthusiastic enough about the idea to get involved. And you know, a lot of the educational stuff doesn't really need a mission, it just needs the idea of the mission yeah. uh, for people to, uh, kids in particular, to start doing things. And yeah. if you were a betting man, when would you say is the year that you might actually see this take off? Um, we uh, we think it'll be 2025. Sure. Um, again, it'll be confirmed. It may be 2026. 2024, we, we announced two years ago as, as the most likely date. I think we've missed that. But... Um, it could. It really depends on the drilling. The drilling is what we call in project management terms the critical path. Sure. So if the drilling gets uh, takes longer, then the delay, then the launch will be delayed. If the drilling can be done more quickly, then we can bring the launch date beforehand. Right. Mm. Uh, conceivably 2023, but that would be very unlikely. 2024 is still possible. 2025 is more likely, and then 2026 or even beyond. Yeah. You know, we're not dictated by time scale. Mm. At least not at this stage. Yeah, I mean, what I really like about the whole project is that it represents that whole move into a commercial space sector where the public and commercial companies can get involved in something that's actually quite inspiring, newsworthy and inspiring on a kind of large space event. I, I like to think of it as not man on the moon, but men and women yeah. in the moon. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Well, thanks very much for joining yeah, us, David. Yeah. I know that we've got to get on and actually do this thing, the next bit. So thanks very yeah, much thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for your time. Very, it's very been well a pleasure. Explained. So, Jamie, did you have uh, did you have uh, did you have some fun down at the BIS? Oh, it was so much fun. The library blew my mind. I, I can't get over the amount of geeky but amazing books they had. Well, yeah, I mean it's it's basically one of the most profoundly ace libraries in in spaceflight. You know, literally books going right the way back to 1933. It's I'll crazy. tell you what, it was it was impressive stuff, and impressive people were just mingling around. I think we had someone from NASA pop in at one point, didn't they? Yeah, popping in on a holidays to check out uh, the BIS. I mean, if anyone's going to disturb your podcast, I'd love it to be someone from NASA. So that was fine. It was awesome. Yes, in, in some of those interviews that we uh, will be playing, uh, you'll be able to hear um, yeah people shuffling around. That's actually. Uh, it's a busy, it's a busy place. It is a In busy fact, place. you can hear like bells and whistles all through that. So we've retreated back to our normal. Uh, um, we're in our little cave again. We are in our little cave. So we were halfway through telling people about uh, the BIS, I believe. We were, yeah, that's right. <laughs> when we when we had to do our interview, so um, I think we got to the fact that in 1978, uh, the BIS, uh, one of its most famous projects was Project Daedalus. Yes. Which we've talked about on our uh, interstellar probe episode when we were talking about Proxima C. That's right. Uh, and how to get there. And product, uh, Project Daedalus was a, a pellet-driven nuclear pulse fusion rocket yes. that accelerated to 12% of the speed of light. 12% people. And uh, in the eighth episode of, of the classic series by Carl Sagan of Cosmos, 
he actually has some brilliant drawings of Daedalus that he uh, gets out. It's the what? It's the episode where he's in the museum of Leonardo da Vinci. Aha, yes. Yes, and he, so he's got all the Leonardo da Vinci's um, flying machines around him and on the table, drawings of Daedalus. It's a really, really amazing episode. Do you know, I watched last Christmas, I, was, I, was, I had the flu and my mum had the flu and we both watched Cosmos. And I th- so I think, you know, another year on, we might have to revisit it. Oh, my God, so Hopefully good. not as sick this time, but, you know, yeah, got, to revisit, got to revisit the Sagan. Yeah, and Carl Sagan actually uh, did visit um, the BIS. Ah, OK. Um, on, on May the 3rd, 1974, he gave an evening talk about extraterrestrial intelligence. Blimey, I bet that was, uh, I, I bet that was one to be at. Yesterday, unfortunately, was the sad 20th anniversary of his returning to Stardust. Yeah, absolutely. It's nice to remember the uh, absolute legend. We should we should one day maybe dedicate an entire episode to Carl Sagan because I think that I think it would be rude easy. not to. That's a good idea. Uh, now, and later on in the BIS history, they they actually started thinking about Mars as a mission. That's right. So it, back, way way back in 1980, one of the BIS's sort of linchpins uh, is a is a chap called Bob Parkinson, who's legendary in. Uh, space flight circles he's, yeah. uh, desi- he's designed some of the most amazing rockets there are including uh, i believe he was involved with Ariane 5 which we've just heard take off just absolutely now. so uh, and he wrote he wrote a paper on how to get to uh, mars using uh, i think he was using sort of uh, bits of the um, space shuttle kind of infrastructure and, yeah. he, and he basically he, he wrote an entire paper on how to get to Mars for uh, for nineteen ninety five. So he only thought it was going to take a decade. So he, you know this going to Mars thing has been around a long time. But uh, one of the, the very first really serious sort of feasibility studies was Bob Parkinson's uh, Mars in ninety five. I think Elon needs to give some uh, tips of the cap. You know, yeah, back to a few people, and one that we have talked about is Project Icarus, yeah. the Z Pinch nuclear fusion uh, rocket. The current one of the current projects that the British Interplanetary Society is involved with, with absolutely with Tau Zero Foundation. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And let me tell you one interesting fact: uh, Brian Blessed, according to his biography, got his job on the Star Wars film that he did, The Phantom Menace, Mm. uh, because George Lucas heard that he was a member of the British Interplanetary Society and was so impressed, he just said, ego, Brian, is a job. There you go. (laughs) I'd like to think that that's true. Um, But I I, I think it's probably because he watched Flash Gordon (laughs) and was just blown away. Gordon's alive! Didn't you actually hear him say that in the flesh? Oh, no, no. I, I actually went to see Flash Gordon at Somerset House and Brian Blessed was sat behind me for the entire film shouting out his lines. It, it is definitely, <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely one of my favourite cinema experiences. Yeah, that's, that's going to be hard to be topped. Incredible. Oh, amazing. I saw Rogue One last night as well. Oh, it's, Matt, it's amazing, isn't it? Oh, my God, it's so good. It's for me, it's the best Star Wars film since Empire Strikes Back, for sure. You know what? I'd, I'd actually agree with that. It's, it, it is, it's really, really brilliant. I can't really think of many flaws in it. It's, it's no, excellent. It's, it's absolutely amazing. Loved it. Yeah, so that's, that's definitely one to go see. I thought it was brilliant. Agreed. So let's have a bit of news. What's been happening in, the, in, in space 
Jamie, any, have you got any news? Well, you know, there's a, there's a few things going on. We've got uh, ExoMars 2020. So it's been given the full go-ahead. ESA and uh, Thales Alenia Space signed a contract uh, on the 16th of December that secures the completion of the European elements of the next mission. Nice, nice. Which, which includes the uh, rover itself. Yeah. And also the descent module, parachute, radar, inertial measurement unit, the UHF radio elements and the onboard computer and software. So all of that sort of stuff for the next part of ExoMars. So we've already got the trace gas orbiter that's flying around, which we talked about last week, that had yeah. sort of gone through quite a few of its uh, initial testing. Mm. Uh, it's going to be a very, very exciting um, mission indeed. So the, yeah, So it's going to go and do a bit of uh, drilling. And the main... The whole purpose of that mission is to see if there was life ever on Mars. On Mars! Was there life on Mars? I think that there probably was. I don't think it was Big Life, but I think there was some life. Big Life? That was a, that's the name of another band, isn't it, Big Life? Yeah, it was, yeah. not sure what they did. No, I can't remember, I can't remember no. any of their songs. Let's hope they're not listening. They'll be furious. Thomas uh, Besquet, uh, the ESA uh-huh. astronaut that's up at the moment on the International uh-huh. Space Station, he's going to go on a spacewalk. Ah, oh, nice. Which will be the 11th European, after the 10th being at Tim Peake, of course. And it's going to last up to seven hours. So this is going to be on the 13th of January. Are we going to be able to see this live like we were with, uh, with Peake? Almost certainly we'll see it on NASA TV, yes. Awesome. They are actually really cool to watch those because you realise just <laughs> how hard love, they work. I think, honestly think that's my favourite because you just get that, you get that blackness of, of space. Just It just looks so incredible. I mean, you can't yeah. imagine what it's like out there. So again, it's, it's to uh, make some repairs or to, to shore up the power supply of the solar panels, which is what Tim Peake was doing. And Matt, I tell you what, talking about cool stuff... Mm-hmm. You put up a photo on Facebook a few days ago that, I'm not going to lie, it blew my mind. And this is the space laser. Oh, yeah, it blew my mind as well. The the NASA cloud aerosol LIDAR with orthogonal po- polarisation. That one. Is that a new band name? Because it just rolls off the tongue. <laughs> it's my really hard password. <laughs> <It's> my... <laughs> people, need to, people need to go up on the blog and check this check this picture out it's it's really it's really lovely so basically yeah it is actually a satellite that fires a laser into the sea to uh, observe plankton and how they move around it's absolutely brilliant it was launched nice. in 2006 i'm endorsing it uh, and boeing have uh, pretty much assembled all the parts for the sls awesome so yeah that's all being put together uh, and it's on its way to the Michoud Assembly Facility in New Orleans, or MAF, in Louisiana. Nice work, Boeing. Yeah, good work. And that's so hopefully we'll see SLS in late 2018. God, 2018. If it's if it's all that it's going to be cracked up to be, I almost want 2017 not to happen so we can get straight to 2018. Well, we can just fast forward that. That's no problem. Can you do that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know you. I know you're having problems with the, <laughs> your voice slowing down, but can you speed time up as well? I can do that, Matt. See, I said that normally, but did you see that? That was quick. Oh my gosh, that's amazing! I reckon with a bit of editing, I can make that work. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, ah, uh, oh, the, the one story that I really loved in the is the Panoramic Survey Telescope and Rapid Response System, or PanStars. 
Yes. Which, uh, which began observing the night sky in 2010 with a 1.8 metre telescope on the island of Moi in Hawaii. It has just released all the data, which is basically a big catalogue of stars and galaxies and nebulas and stuff like that. It's an enormous database. Matt, to put it into perspective, how much data is it this? It is 2 billion petabytes, which, which is right. 2 million gigabytes, which is 100 times bigger than Wikipedia. <laughs> Uh, so, could I get all of that information on my 16 gig iPhone? Um, well, how many 16s go into <laughs> 2 million? <laughs> I'm going to need to do some maths and come back yeah, to you, Matt. Uh, the answer is no. Or I'll tell you what, let, let's probably best put it on Dropbox. Uh, or the... I think I should be sponsored by Dropbox after that little plug. Oh, that's plug. funny, it's the second time Dropbox has come up today. So, I, I just quickly want to... Well, it's the third now. Uh, well, exactly, it's the fifth. <laughs> um, oh my gosh! Oh so, uh, so let's have a quick look at the launches that happened this week. And, and the here we go. Let's the, rattle through them. Who's ra- up first? Well, I'm going to go with. Just Please after, tell me it's Atlas Five. It is Atlas Five, and I'm yes. going to ask you a question, Jamie, and you've got to answer it. It was an Atlas Five four three one. What does that mean? Oh wait, isn't that the the configuration? Yeah. Yeah. With a four-meter fairing, yeah, three solid rocket boosters, yep. and one single-engine Centaur upper stage. That is absolutely right. Are oh, you are every and every literally everyone is saying that I'm the thick one on this podcast. I don't think everyone's saying that. Well, eat that, punks. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. So four, three, one. That's exactly right. Uh, and it launched a satellite called the Echo Star Nineteen, or the XIX, nice. if you want to. If you want to do it in its normal Roman numerals that they like to yeah. have. Uh, it's also known as the Jupiter 2. And it's a it's the most powerful high-speed internet broadband uh, satellite for HughesNet in North America. Now, this wow. th- uh, now just to put this into perspective, this thing is m- it's absolutely enormous. It's one of those satellites that is jaw-droppingly huge. And it took 2 million man-hours of work to build, two years of work. Uh, and... It's going to work for 15 years up in space. Wow. I know. That's the cool. world's highest capacity broadband satellite. Yeah. And, it, and um, so after 32 minutes after launch, the Centaur engine managed to get it up into its super synchronous orbit, which, which has a low, a low point of 127 miles and a high point of 40,000 miles. So that's like... Like we said, a sixth of the way to the moon. <laughs> like, yeah, that's uh, that's quite high up. I know. So so this, and, and it goes into this orbit, and uh, the Echo Stars nineteen onboard propulsion will then uh, circularize the orbit to an altitude of twenty two thousand miles, uh, and uh, and then the spacecraft will take twenty four hours to complete one trip around the planet. In a geo, it's, al- so in other it's words, almost it's almost a full day. Yeah, so it's it's a geosynchronous orbit essentially. So uh, and so it'll appear to be stationary. It won't be one of those ones that appears as a small dot that goes across the sky. It will just become a new star. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it's isn't that amazing? Twenty two thousand three hundred miles above the equator. Now. What I thought was brilliantly interesting was that this satellite was originally supposed to launch on an Ariane 5, like the, yeah. one, like the one that we've literally just had. Yeah. Um, but 
HughesNet wanted to get this spacecraft up into orbit as early as possible to start earning it some revenue. Uh-huh. And uh, Ariane 5 launches two satellites at a time, uh, and the launch slot for this year had already been used, so it was th- there was no launch slots available. So they decided to go with an Atlas V, even though it's a lot more expensive, but there's some, a, a few savings. Obviously, they get it up there quicker. It means they can start earning money off it quicker. But also, the Atlas V is able to get it into this higher orbit, which means that the satellite itself uses less fuel to get up to that orbit, to its operational orbit, meaning that it stays in service longer. In other words, means that it'll earn more money. Isn't that in- isn't that interesting? I like <clears throat> that, and I like that it's pulling its weight. You know, it is indeed actually pulling its weight. You know what I mean? It's like a teenager that's left home, and it's finally bringing some bread home. Oh yeah, man! I bet it'll bring <laughs> some serious bread home as well. Cause oh, big time! I don't imagine this thing was cheap. No, you, absolutely you, you not. Ha- honestly, Jamie, you have to see pictures of this thing. It is gargantuan oh no Jamie there was another yeah. remember the uh, Ariane Vega rocket yeah now the J- Japanese have got a similar rocket to that called the Epsilon which has only ever flown once before yeah uh, uh, in 2013 and it and it launched this week as well on December the 20th from the Ukinura Space Centre nice and uh, it didn't have its fourth hydrazine fueled stage so it was just three solid stages that went up this time okay this new Epsilon rocket replaces uh the, it's, it replaces another rocket called the MV, and it's only £23 million per launch, which is half the cost. Uh, and one of the reasons is because it only needs eight people at the launch site compared to 150 people for earlier launches. So this thing can fly... Why, why is that? I don't know. It, it, <laughs> it's, it says it's got this thing called mobile launch control, so I don't know. I don't know whether they do it on their Samsung Galaxies or something. I was going to say, is it like where you get modern offices where most people just work from home? Yeah. <laughs> is everyone just Skype, Skyping in going, yeah, it's fine, five, four, three. Oh, I've lost connection. I think they just do it all on their Sony smart, smartphones. Maybe even on a Sony smartwatch. Maybe that's how they do it. Are you trying to get some more free product? <laughs> yeah, well, I hope so. So Sony, uh, yeah, maybe send us some gear. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, that would uh, be nice. Uh, but what is another interesting fact about this rocket is that in 2012, the Japanese space agency uh, reported that they had had a possible leak of the rocket's data due to a comp- computer virus. And ah. the reason why this is scary is because actually this this Epsilon rocket actually is very very easy to turn into intercontinental ballistic missile. So it has. That. Proper, you know, military use. Yeah. So I wonder who nicked. I wonder who nicked. I mean, the I don't like what these things can do, but that certainly is three words that sound good together. Intercontinental isn't it? ballistic missile. Or, it sounds like a Beastie Boys. Yeah, well, track. IBM. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Uh, Illuminati confirmed for the second second oh time of the day. Oh my god, where's the triangle in the eye? Uh, and today we've had uh, an Ariane 5 launch spectacular, brilliant and that was carrying Star 1 D1 and a JCSat 15 communication satellite so one one does broadband television over Japan for Sky and the other one does corporate networks for Latin America well, ahaza oh, oh, the the Japanese Epsilon uh, satellite that went up actually was to uh, investigate the Van Allen radiation belts. Oh, okay. There, there was supposed to be a Chinese Long March 2D 
going up as today oh, yeah. as well. So I don't I don't know whether that's happened. So I've got I have to look that up. And uh, later on this week, another long march two D. So China are just sort of just putting rockets up for fun. They at the are absolutely killing it, aren't they? No, actually, actually, there, there was another. There's a there's <laughs> there's a rocket out there called the X Space. Yeah. E X P A C E. Uh, this is a Chinese commercial rocket. Now that actually might fly before the end of the year. It sounds familiar. I wonder so where they got that, the idea to call it X Space. <laughs> and you should see the logo. It's it's quite familiar as well, well. The Chinese do read left to right, so it does kind of make sense. I see the loophole that they've done <laughs> <Yeah>. there. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's the KZ11. I think is the is, is the craft right, that might fly. Right. So that should be really interesting because that will open up yet another new space commercial commercial route into space. Awesome. Well, I'm I'm loving it. So uh, thanks very much for joining us, listeners. Thank you, guys. You're saints and scholars. And um, I'll tell you what. Well, we'll see you next week, won't we? For oh, for what uh, is the last podcast of 2016? Yeah, and we'll, we'll have a big rundown of the year and we'll have that interview with John from I4IS. Absolutely. Uh, so, in the meantime, have a lovely Christmas or a lovely uh, winter holiday and uh, we'll see you next week. I concur. Eat, drink and be merry, people. And, uh, you know, if, you, if anyone wants to send me any of those uh, green triangles that you get in Quality Street then um, I'll be happy to receive them. Do you know why Santa couldn't use the alphabet? Go on. Because there's no L. Bye, everyone. Have I ruined the entire podcast? We promise promise to be better next year. We promise. (laughs) Oh, yeah, no, we should definitely make that promise. Okay, we'll promise not to do weak puns. Bye, everyone. (laughs) Merry Christmas. Bye. Bye. Bye.